0: Jeremiah 34, where we're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is God's Word. The Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by sword. You shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities in Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would would set free his slave, male and female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into the subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to the city and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Let's pray. Father, would you now open our eyes and would you instruct us? Would you cause us to see all that is meant for us to see and understand in your word today? Would you take it and apply it that we might, uh, again, walk in a manner worthy of you, that we wouldn't come here and then leave the same today, but that you would change us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, after completing the Book of Consolation in chapters 30 to 33, we come now to chapter 34, and we're back into the theme of judgment. And although I haven't gotten a lot of complaints, I would imagine some of you are at least secretly thinking, can't we just be done? You know, we've been conditioned by our movies and by our books, that when the climax of the story is reached and the, and the, you know, the, the, the um, conflict is resolved and the credits roll up and the pages end, that the story is over and we're ready for it to be over. If you've ever gone to a theater and been captivated by a great story in a movie, and it's so much so that you, you're kind of in that fog and then you walk outside into the sunlight and you realize, oh, it was just a movie. Well, for Judah, the reality was that the hope of consolation wasn't fantasy, but it was still in the future. It wasn't their current reality. Their current reality was an attacking army and the subsequent exile that was coming. That was their true experience. They still had to face it. And so it's good for us because we can relate to this. We're, in a sense, waiting for consolation consummation, right? For Christ to return and make uh, everything that we hope in a reality, to bring all of it to fruition. And so we still live in a sin-wrecked world, and we long for that day when everything is made right. The hope of Jeremiah 30 to 33 includes our hope of the new covenant and the ultimate restoration that will come at Christ's return. And only then will God make a full end of all of our suffering only then will he completely heal all of our wounds only then will he give us gladness for sorrow and we will be fully satisfied with his goodness only then will his law be perfectly on our hearts so that we will no longer need a teacher only then will our sins be eradicated permanently and completely in the sense that we will no longer know the presence of sin then the new Jerusalem will be our city And it will never be overthrown. Then he will never stop doing good to us and will cause us to fear him perfectly so we will never turn from him. Then he will give us an abundance of prosperity and security by forgiving our sins and erasing our guilt forever. And then we will fully enjoy the reign of our king forever. The righteous right branch. The Lord is our righteousness. That is what we're waiting. All of those promises that I just read, all of them from the new covenant presented in chapters 30 to 33. That is what we're looking toward. So while we wait, we can relate to Judah who is now waiting as they must go through the throes of war and suffering and an exile that would last 70 years until they would be delivered and returned to the land. So chapter 34 is taking us back in time. Not very far, but somewhat to, to when Nebuchadnezzar first came in and attacked Zedekiah. And he did this, you know, he came in first and he removed the previous king, put Zedekiah in his place. But then Zedekiah began to rebel, and that's why he came back. Of course, he was conquering the world at the time. He was building the Babylonian Empire. And we see that reflected in the text, that he came not only with his own army, but with these you know, armies of other places that he had conquered. So this is probably around five eighty-nine or early five eighty-eight BC. And what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, you know, he came in from the north and he began to work through the land of Judah, but it was a squeeze attack. He was taking over the fortified cities, but Jerusalem would be the final, the last stand, so to speak. It was the most fortified of the cities, and so this made sense. And it was during this time the attack of Jerusalem had already begun. But it was during this time that Zedekiah reached out to Egypt as the kings of Judah and Israel often did they reached out to Egypt and Assyria and other superpowers for help and he, he reached out the Pharaoh at the time whose name was Hophra and he came up at Zedekiah's request to fight against the Babylonian siege and so this caused Nebuchadnezzar to take his army from Jerusalem and go and deal with Hophra he had to deal with this nuisance that was coming up from Egypt And I say nuisance because Egypt was at one time a superpower, but it's clear from history that Babylon had exceeded their might and their power. And so there was a pause in the attack against Jerusalem, and that pause will come into play in the second account that's given in chapter 34. We'll come back to that. But first, we see the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah during the initial part of Nebuchadnezzar's march against Judah, when he came not only with all his army, it says in verse 1, but also all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion. I can't help but envision, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of imagery, these massive, you know, armies that he had accrued, not just from Babylon, but from these other nations that he had taken. And that's what, that, that's what kings did. When they took over a nation, that army became subservient to him. And so then they had to go and fight at that king's request. And so all of those armies then joined in. Judah didn't have a chance didn't have a chance. Of course, we know what God had prophesied, and in that sense, they didn't. But even from a human perspective, this was a mighty army coming against him. And the message given to Jeremiah is for Zedekiah, and it doesn't contain anything new that we haven't seen before, but it comes with what we see as a conditional promise. And it's a conditional promise, I believe, because of what we've seen in other messages given to Zedekiah. The condition isn't mentioned here, but it seems from what is mentioned that it is conditional. You remember back in chapter 21 that Zedekiah was told to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And he was told to surrender and the Lord told him, your life will be spared if you surrender, but if you don't, you will die. And he didn't, uh, he continued to resist. And the, the people were told the same thing. But here is that same line of thought, even though the specific condition isn't mentioned, what would lead us to that Conclusion is not just the chapter in twenty or the message in chapter twenty one, but also the fact that uh, the promise that he would have that he would die in peace doesn't seem to be how Zedekiah died. Of course, we could define dying in peace differently, that he didn't die by the sword, he died in prison as far as we can tell, um, that he didn't die in battle or he wasn't executed. Uh, the Bible doesn't record Zedekiah's death, but we do know that at his capture. He watched his sons be executed before his eyes, and then he had his eyes gouged out. And I had struggled to find that as a peaceful end or a way to end life, to watch your own children killed before having your eyesight stolen from you in what would have been a very painful uh, event. So the promise in verse 5 from the Lord, you will die in peace, doesn't seem to fit. Although, again, we could define dying in peace differently, and maybe uh, it did. Since we don't know how Zedekiah died, uh, we know that that's evidently not essential for us to, to discern. But what we do see is all the other pieces fell into place, right? He was carried off. He didn't escape the hand of Zedekiah. He did come face to face, or sorry, the the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And he came face to face with the king of Babylon uh, as he was carried off as an exile, as a prisoner, uh, along with many of the people in Judah. And then we come to verses 6 and 7 and it's almost a transitional sense. A sentence, maybe a, a, like a parenthetical thought here where we have uh, the initial word that comes to Zedekiah probably early on in that attack uh, and then this event that's going to unfold next. And here it simply says that Jeremiah spoke all these words. Jeremiah spoke all these words. We know that Jeremiah confronted Zedekiah on more than one occasion, and what's implied here is that there were multiple occasions. I'm not going just on this word alone, but also what we saw in chapter 32 that when uh, Zedekiah, uh, through Jeremiah in prison in Jerusalem, he gave a reason. You know, basically, I'm sick and tired of hearing you prophesy. And so he imprisoned him. And so it seems that there was this faithfulness on Jeremiah's part to continually proclaim the message that God gave him. And Zedekiah eventually just got fed up with him. And he threw him in prison. Well, the same is true for us when we speak of the hope within us or when we stand for what the Bible stands for or we speak against what the Bible says is an offense to God. And while this doesn't mean that we have to try and be offensive or act unkindly, there are going to be times where our message is an offense. Even the message of our lives, just the way that we live can be an offense. Do not be discouraged for speaking the truth, yet, yet remember the fruit of the Spirit. We don't need to try and offend people. We don't need to try and be annoying. We can't help if someone chooses to be offended, but remember what the fruit of the Spirit looks like as we do stand for the truth and speak for the truth. Remember the Beatitudes and how Christ described how we are to live in his kingdom as we stand for the truth and speak of the truth. At the end of verse 7, we see these two lone cities that remained uh, besides Jerusalem. These were the last two fortified cities. And I don't know why they're included in the text but I do think there's something of interest that doesn't really pertain to the message but is maybe worth considering about these two cities in the early 1930s so not even 100 years ago archaeological excavations found these broken uh, shards of pottery that had 21 messages when they put them all together they found 21 letters that dated back to this time and one of the letters was from an unknown officer we know his name Hoshiayu uh, we don't know anything else about him. He wrote it to Yehosh, the military governor of Lachish. I would imagine that's documented somewhere. And he wrote in his message We are watching for the signals of Lachish according to all the indications which my Lord hath given, for we cannot see Azica. And so it seems to be at this point that uh, Azica has fallen. They can't see the signal fires anymore. They've been extinguished as the city has been overtaken. And so Lachish then was the last city to stand. And this, again, isn't vital to the overall message of this passage, but it is a good time to pause and consider the fact that the Bible is true and has been corroborated countless times and ways through means like this, archaeological findings. The Bible is not simply a story of fairy tales, of moral stories for us to live better lives, but it is the true history of God's plan of redemption that that unfolds throughout time, revealing his kingdom and his glory. And so we can take confidence as we read it. Now, the second episode that we see in chapter 34 begins in verse 8, and it tells us of this event that happened during the siege against Judah. And it involves a practice that was set forth by God for the nation of Israel under the civil law in which those who were in debt and could not financially repay that debt could bond themselves as a servant to the one to, the, to whom the debt was owed. And, and, and this was done for people in, in, in dire straits, as you might imagine. But God had very specific rules for how this was to be carried out so that the maximum one could serve was six years. And then the seventh year was given as a sabbatical. It was given a year they were free from work, as we'll see. Now, this is described in Exodus 21 in Leviticus 25 in Deuteronomy 15. We're not going to take time to read the details in all of those passages, but it's worth noting some of the rules that God provided in the giving of this law. The rule specified the fellow Israelites should not serve as a slave but as a hired worker. So there was to be some sense of dignity ascribed to their brother or sister or their fellow Jew. They were also told to remember their history that they had once been slaves in Egypt, and they were not to rule harshly over one another, but were to fear God. When such a bondservant was let go, they were told to send them away, not empty-handed, but you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. If a debt is incurred, the bond is to be no longer than six years. And in the seventh year, he or she shall be free from work. So because God had redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, he commands them not to slave, enslave one another. That is, redeemed people should remember their past, their history, from what they have been redeemed from. Remember the parable that Jesus gave to his disciples? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled both debts. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, one of the few times Simon got it right, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. In other words, remembering from what we've been saved should transform the way we treat other people. that was the principle, really, behind this whole law given to, to, to govern how they treated bond servants who were in debt to each other, not to be harsh, but to fear God, to remember their own redemption from slavery. In other words, don't take advantage of one another. Don't look down on one another. Remember, you would still be making bricks in Egypt if I hadn't redeemed you, all of you, the haves and the have-nots. He's given this law to the entire nation to remind them not to look down their noses and to be condescending to those who struggled. And with that background that Zedekiah then, it was in that context that Zedekiah then made this covenant with the people in Jerusalem, to proclaim liberty to them, that everyone should set, his, set free his Hebrew slave. Now, right away when we read that, we should note the irony of it. This covenant that Zedekiah made was a covenant that was already in place. God had made the covenant with the people at Sinai and had given his law to his people, and this was included as part of that, that they should not mistreat one another by enslaving their fellow Jew. So there is some irony that they had not been doing what God told them to do all along, and then they decided to do it, and they made a covenant. Why did they even need to do that, even though God praises them for it? They hadn't been doing it. For some time, it says, as your fathers had not been doing this in verse 14, why, what was the motivation? Was Zedekiah doing some kind of religious act to appease God's, uh, to earn God's favor, to appease God? You know, uh, ba- the Babylonian army's coming He's, he's, he's nervous. He's thinking what to do. Uh, you know, he, he would have known the history of Josiah and the Reformation that included under Josiah's rule. Maybe he's thinking like that. Others have suggested it was an attempt to, to just, you know, kind of pragmatism, just free up more people to fight in the battle or to do work in the city. We don't know the reason. We're not told. What we do need to know is that they, after doing this good thing, then turned back and brought their sisters and brothers back into subjection and slavery now earlier i mentioned that there was a pause in the attack from nebuchadnezzar when he went down to deal with pharaoh uh, coming up from egypt and that is when this event happened that is when uh, zedekiah decides to make this covenant and so when babylon withdraws they think oh it's working and then Babylon's gone, and he doesn't know what the future holds. He should because Jeremiah's told him, but he doesn't believe Jeremiah. And so as soon as the, the, the attackers are gone, they, they, they do a yui. Hey, everybody's back in slavery again. And they undo what they had done, which God called a noble thing. Verses 21 and 22 reference the fact that the armies had withdrawn, but that the Lord would bring them back to finish the job. So the releasing of the slaves, the backtracking was clearly connected to the relief from the onslaught uh, that was happening. I'm sure that Zedekiah and the people thought that they had prevailed, that it had worked. They had appeased God or the gods or whatever there was in their hearts, whatever they were thinking. And we understand that people do desperate times or do desperate things in desperate times. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's often fickle. We saw after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in our country, church attendance surge. Only slowly, slowly, slowly over the weeks, it faded back away. People forgot. People were no longer distraught. I remember in boot camp, I started reading my Bible at night before lights out. We had five minutes or so. And people saw me reading my Bible, and they came over and asked me to read it to them, and revival broke out. Not really. But that's what it felt like. I mean, there was, like, you know, after a few weeks, I had, like, a dozen people around me because they wanted to hear the Bible. Why? Because we were all desperate. We were all just barely holding on by our fingernails in this time of, you know, sleep deprivation and hunger and physical exhaustion and so forth. And everybody gets desperate for God. But as soon as we graduated, whew, It all evaporated. The revival was over. It's not necessarily a problem that we call to God, that people call to God, but we do need to recognize the fickleness of our own hearts and how many promises have been made. Lord, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll do this, or I promise to do this, and that kind of thing. This is what happened with Judah. They made this covenant to God to try and appease him, to try and earn his favor, and when it seemed like it worked, then they forgot it all, and they took the, uh, their, their brothers and sisters back. Now, Zedekiah was at the helm of this act. He was the leader in this act. And, 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 and the irony, of course, is the fact that what he was doing was unnecessary. He simply needed to lead the people to, make, to, to obey God, not to make another covenant. Uh, to, to go through all the religious pomp and circumstance that is uh, somewhat hinted or described a little bit in this of making the covenant in the temple he simply needed to know what God had already done. He needed to know God's word, but he forgot God's word, and so he came up with his own plan. God here in verse 13 reminds him, reminds the people, it is I who delivered you from out of slavery, out of the house of slavery in Egypt, right? This, he continues to remind his people of this, that they might remind, remember what they've been saved from. <laughs> And it was based on this that God says he established this sabbatical law that the Israelites should go free after six years of service, verse 14. He notes their fathers have failed to do this. They haven't been doing it. And then he commends them, verse 15, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty. God doesn't even take the the time to, to point out and say to them, you really didn't need to do this because I've already established it. You just needed to obey me. He just commends them. You repented. You did what you should have done. But then immediately after that, verse 16, but then you turned around and you profaned my name when they took their kinsmen back into slavery. Now, we're not told how they accomplished this, how they were able to bring people back into slavery who were their kinsmen, but it's not hard to imagine how it would have been possible since Zedekiah was the leader in all of this and he certainly had the power to enforce it as king. But God calls it here a turning back. He said they turned back. And it's that same word that we have seen over and over and over in Jeremiah. And we miss it in the English because, I mean, here it's translated turned, but it's not always translated turned. It's used sometimes as a noun, sometimes as a verb, sometimes as an adverb. But the the root word shuv in Hebrew is used 137 times in Jeremiah. Clearly a theme, as we've already seen, that the message that Jeremiah brings to the people of Judah is that they would turn back To God. There was, in a sense, that initial command or call to turn back to God, something the people needed. But there's also we see the word turn used to uh, describe how they uh, turned from God, right? There's there's correction in that too. In this case, they initially turned back and then, then they turned away from God. And so we see the word used in those two ways. And the third way we see it used is a returning, in that after you have turned away that you could return. And this is the the idea that God is merciful, no matter how far we've turned or how often, how many times we turn away from him, that he stands ready to save. We might think of the story of the prodigal son and the lavish love and grace of the father for the one who squandered his inheritance and ran off. We might think of the story of Paul who murderously attacked Christ's church and then God redeemed him. We might think of Peter's story, how he denied Jesus three times at the night of his crucifixion. Or we might think of our own life story and how many times we have fallen away and turned back. My point is that God is merciful and forgives when we truly repent, that is, when we truly turn to him. Our problem is we think he has limits to his mercy. And we do this, I think, in two ways. We either think, There's no way he can forgive me after I've done this for the umpteenth time, right? I've blown it. There's no way. I've exhausted his mercy. Or we look down our nose at others and we think (laughs) they're beyond God's mercy because they just can't figure it out the way I have figured it out. Those two extremes are both problematic because they both make light of the all-atoning work of Christ. The all-sufficient Death of Jesus provides plenteous redemption, as we stated this morning. Plenteous grace. And by plenteous grace, I mean that we can't exhaust it. We can't measure it. We can't count it. And you might think, but we shouldn't go on sinning that grace might abound. And I would say, you're absolutely right, we shouldn't. But we also shouldn't try to categorize or measure where the limits of his grace exist. Who are we to determine the limits of God's mercy? We shouldn't limit God's grace for ourselves, thinking that we're beyond his forgiveness, nor should we limit God's grace for others in some attitude of spiritual snobbery. We are all beggars who have been found and saved by Christ and now point others where to find the bread of life. We point others to the endless fountain of saving grace found at the cross, just like Judah was reminded that they too had been slaves in Egypt and shouldn't forget that, we need to remember our own past from what we have been slaved. We should remember our enslavement to sin, our struggles, our ongoing struggles, and our inability to lift ourselves out of the pit of sin and death. And we should be merciful and kind to fellow strugglers instead of proud and demeaning. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James 2.13 says. So instead of trying to determine who should get God's mercy and who shouldn't, go back to your own need for mercy and recognize that you didn't deserve it, nor did you earn it. Instead, be filled with thankfulness. Thankfulness not only for yourself that God has been kind and shown favor and saved you from your sins, but kind to others as well, even if they struggle in ways that you don't. Be careful not to disparage a smoldering wick or a bruised reed. All of us could spend more time working on the logs in our own eyes instead of the specks in other people's eyes is what I'm getting at. All of us. The message to turn to God and to return again when Judah failed again and again is central to all of Jeremiah. God sees fit to include this instance in this breaking of a human covenant that was was, uh, in a sense of an imitation of the the covenant that God had established with them. He uses this to show us not only Judah's need that they would read this in exile, but us, our need for repentance again and again and again. What they did was a charade. We know it because of the end of the story, how it falls out. But they did it big. They went into the temple. They, they went through the whole act of cutting a covenant where they cut an animal in half. In this case, it was a calf, and uh, they passed through it. And what they're saying is, let it be done to me as has been done to this animal if I don't keep the covenant. They took this. This was, was a serious act. And think of how quickly they turned back how quickly they took their brothers and sisters back into slavery after doing this thing. And as a result of this God says behold in verse 17 I proclaim to you liberty to the sword to pestilence and to famine. They were free to receive judgment. That's what he's saying. An ironic use of the word liberty meant to sink deeply into the hard hearts of these people to whom Jeremiah preached. This is yet another sad event stacks up with all the other sad events that we've seen throughout the book of Jeremiah that justifies the judgment that God is bringing on the nation of Judah. And the Babylonian army is going to come back, and they did come back, and they would burn the city to the ground as they did. What the people of Judah failed to get was certainly obedience to God's command. They had been neglecting it for a long time, and they they, they did it again, failed miserably in this case. But their obedience or disobedience, rather, is reflected in their mistreatment of their own countrymen. Those with means were being unmerciful to those who lacked means. Can only imagine how they justified their work. They got themselves into this mess, they can get themselves out. If they wouldn't spend their money on X, Y, or Z, then they would have had enough money to pay me back. Have you seen their kid and that mule he rides? I never had that nice of an animal when I was his age. (laughs) I'm meddling now. If they were just more disciplined... They'd be better better able to manage their money. I I don't know that these were the conversations, but I can imagine there's not much new under the sun. We do the same things when we look down our noses at people who struggle. And this in the case of actual uh, dealing with money. It matters. They figured out ways to circumvent God's good law to them that was designed to protect them and to help them. And they felt fair and just patting themselves on the back. And God is pointing out to them saying, hey, again, you guys realize y'all would still be making bricks in Egypt if I hadn't delivered you. That should transform the way that you look at others, the way that you treat others. So no matter what we've worked for, how we've earned it, what we think we've possessed or accomplished or whatever we possess, as believers, we have to acknowledge it is all a gift from our God. Every good gift is from his gracious hand. So we can and should show mercy. But it's not just true with our finances and our property and the things that we own and possess. It's also true spiritually. Our sins have been forgiven by grace alone. Spiritual snobbery is simply unacceptable. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone... Have we been saved so that we have nothing in which to boast? Our theological knowledge, our doctrinal exactness, our spiritual disciplines, what are they? They're not bad things. I'm not suggesting we do away with them. But we certainly are not to find pride in them, identity in them, the opportunity to brag in them or to look down our noses at other people. We can show mercy. We can forgive each other. We can be humble about it all because to hold on to any of it is rubbish. What we have gained in Christ is simply everything. Our forgiveness, our adoption, our righteousness. Because of Christ, we have been set free. Don't forget from what you've been set free. We must remember so that we will demonstrate to others the mercy That we have been shown. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Be merciful. Be merciful. Even as your father is merciful, let's pray. Lord, we we recognize our tendency to not be merciful. We see the ways that we are hard-hearted. Would you would you break our hearts? And would you cause the great mercy that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus to overflow out of our hearts? That we would be these cups that just constantly pour out the abundance of mercy that has been shown to us. Rather than people who are keeping records of wrong, going around with our clipboard, writing down where everybody else is wrong and how everybody has sinned against us and all the ways we're oppressed and victims. Lord, would you give us eyes to look past all of that and see that not not only are we victims, but we're also victimizers. We are perpetrators. We are offenders. We are sinners. We are those who have broken your holy law again and again and again, not just sinning against you, but we sinned against our fellow man. So would you cause our hearts to break? to realize that we are vessels of mercy, recipients of mercy, having not earned it nor deserved it. We have only received it because you loved us. So would you allow that love to then flow out of us to love others in the way that you have us? We can't do this, Lord. We can't change our hearts. We need you to do this, and so we ask that you would, that you would make us beacons of your grace to a dying world, we pray in Jesus' name.